0: Welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Philippe de and Ina Correo. And those are my pin names. And I just finished chapter 26. And here I am getting ready for chapter 27. Kind of becoming a thing here that I do two chapters. (laughs) I guess it's just because I'm so excited to get through this story. It definitely is moving along. I don't know if you've noticed, but the chapter 26 was quite long. Um... We are getting longer chapters, but moving fast as we move through this climax. All right, well, let's get into chapter 27, yeah? You might want some tissues between here and the end of the story. Just maybe. Okay? Here we go. Star Trek Enterprise Alien Us by Philippe de Lama-Troc, Chapter 27. Hoshi and the others reached the last coop. One of the other females carried the sack of feed, while Hoshi and the other filled big, shallow bowls with the feed pellets. In this weather, the creatures were staying indoors, so they had to enter the outer cage area and push the bowls through the slots near the floor. Hoshi knew she was running out of time. She had to do something or she'd never get away. The other females had been agitated since mating season started without them. They must have been nearing maturity. Maybe she could use that agitation. The raptor female started forward to enter the cage, but Hoshi rushed her, and, squeezing past her, caused her to stumble. Hoshi fell, but the snow cushioned her fall. The raptor kept her footing, though not without a few awkward steps to balance herself. One of them turned out to be very fortunate for Hoshi. The large, cocked-backed claw on one of the raptor's feet scraped across the bare part of Hoshi's leg. Her blood felt hot on her cold skin. The raptor started to sniff. She smelled it. Hoshi stood up, leaving her food bowl spilt in the snow. She pushed the raptor with both her hands as hard as she could. The raptor rocked back and had to steady herself again, and now she was angry. She lunged for Hoshi, sweeping out those long arms with their sharp claws. Hoshi's coat took most of the blow, but it knocked her down again. The guard began to yell. He tried to calm the raptor down. He ordered the other to stay right where she was and entered the cage, just as the raptor female went inside for Hoshi's midsection with that claw. No hurting, the guard yelled. Then he struck the female with his cow cow prod-like truncheon. She yelped and reluctantly stepped back, growling as she went. Hoshi stayed down to see how this would play out. The guard turned to leave, but the female lunged at Hoshi one more time, and he had to hit her again. He looked lost. Finally, he did what she had hoped, the only safe thing. He used a remote to zap her in the neck. Hoshi went limp, but she could still watch as he forced the female out of the cage and locked the door behind him. "'I'll come back for you,' he told her. Then he prodded the raptor females back the way they had all come. "'I won't be here when you do,' she thought in response." Ten minutes. She could do ten minutes. The snow slowed their walking down. It was deep and coming down hard. They disappeared from her sight within a few minutes. She was starting to get cold. She couldn't brush the snow off of her as it fell. She concentrated on moving her foot, just waiting for the moment it actually would. Malcolm, please answer. It worked. I'm alone. She listened hard, but there was nothing in return. She imagined the console and turned up the volume as far as it would go. Still, she heard nothing but the twittering creatures in the coop. A few intrepid ones crept out cautiously to snag a morsel of food before dashing back inside. They reminded her of squirrels. Finally, her foot moved. She tried to sit up, feeling the minutes and her chance to get away passing her by. She laid back down and counted seconds. After 120, she tried again. She felt weak, but she moved. Slowly, she got to all fours and then used the wall of the cage to pull herself upright. The guard probably knew the paralysis wouldn't last. That's why he had latched the door. He didn't expect she was smart enough to unlatch it. Now that her limbs were responding better, she reached through the metal wires of the cage and easily, easily released the latch. She looked out toward the barely visible fence. It was time. She took off the coat and booties and left them in the snow where she had fallen. Then she stepped out and latched the door again. She was cold, but she didn't care. She walked away from the cage, and then when she felt strong enough, she ran, stepping high in the snow. It was a long way to run like that, and she kept thinking about the guard coming back. She didn't see the pond until she'd fallen into it. The water was cold, but only had a crust of ice covering it. She broke through and got soaked. It wasn't deep though and she stood back up, shivering hard in the cold. She was careful to step around the edge of the pond then. She could now see the tall trees and the fence beyond. It was more of a wall. One tree seemed to have a good set of branches, some low enough that she could reach them to climb and one long one that stretched over the wall. She just hoped there wasn't a city on the other side. A cliff would be better. Climbing was hard. She couldn't feel her fingers and they moved stiffly. She got up on the first limb malcolm i'm coming she thought of him and it gave her courage she moved to the next branch and the next in five minutes or so she was at the height of the wall the long branch was still a bit higher she saw trees on the other side of the wall no lights at least not in her limited visibility she had to maneuver a bit to get to that branch and she nearly slipped the hardest part though was crawling out onto that snow-covered limb she walked at first holding other branches above her for stability but she had to let go of those as she neared the wall. She crouched down and tried to crawl, but the branch couldn't hold her weight. She heard it crack and lunge forward just before it snapped. She hit the wall on the way down and landed hard on rocks below. Her body exploded into pain and she lost consciousness. Trip waited while Woods peered around through the binoculars. Woods stepped back and changed the setting on his rifle the censors didn't do them justice, he whispered. They're huge. Travis sat down a few hundred yards from the facility, and Woods and Tripp had walked to within sight and tucked in behind a rock. Bigger than those guards back at the trillium mine, Tripp whispered back. His heart was already pounding. Malcolm was either in that facility or dying out in the desert. Come to think of it, Woods said. No, they're about the same size. He put his weapon to his shoulder there's one at the door. You ready, sir? Time's a wastin," Tripp replied. Woods got to his knees and fired off two quick rounds. Tripp heard a muted thud, and they were off. Staying behind Woods, Tripp glanced at his tricorder as he ran. There are cameras, he pointed out. Let's hope that there's not enough people on duty to be watching. He looked down at the creatures Woods had stunned. It was immense and reptilian, but not like the Zindi and not like the guards. This wasn't humanoid it did indeed look more like a relatively small dinosaur dressed in armor he gripped his face pistol harder and hoped there weren't any more of them inside he didn't like his chances if it came to -to hand-to-hand combat and by the time they see these recordings we'll be gone woods told him they stepped through the door and found themselves in a corridor lit by a warm red light there were light boards along the walls though they were dimmed some of them still held films of x-rays of the internal parts of something. Tripp thought he recognized a lung. Animal sounds twittered from the various rooms they passed, but Tripp could not see anyone moving in any other part of the building he scanned. They were in a hospital or laboratory of some sort. The animals must have been in cages, he surmised. Tripp led the way now, with Woods keeping guard. He was able to see the schematics now on his tricorder. There was a lot of power coming from a room toward the center of the building. Could be refrigeration, he said. "'Let's go,' Woods replied. Tripp followed the tricorder's promptings as it began to register signs of humanity. There was another guard near the door, but Woods took him down before he could lift his gun. Woods stepped in first. "'Clear.' Tripp was glad for that. He stepped past him and found multiple readings of human DNA. Tripp took the pack off his back and started opening doors. He had a list of medical terms in Jiren downloaded to his tricorder, and he used that to find the vials that belonged to Hoshi and Malcolm. There was mostly blood, kept in cold packs for infusion, but there was also a vial of white liquid Trip did not particularly want to know about, and a lone bone fragment. He took the blood because it might be useful, and he took the bone. Then he set charges in the freezer and refrigerator that held the other samples. They would go off in 30 minutes. He picked up the pack again, and they were out. The tricorder showed two guards at another door. He showed Woods. Could be important to need two guards during turn. Woods nodded, and they went there next. Four shots and two stunned dinosaurs later, they found themselves in a lab filled with communications equipment. There were diagrams of the communicator on the desk there. He started looking, opening up every drawer, looking in every cubbyhole and nook. He did not find the communicator itself it doesn't seem to be here. Blow the whole place up, Woods suggested. If it's here, it'll be destroyed. Tripp looked at the size of the room and the amount of material. We're going to need something bigger here. He set his pack on the desk, and Woods pointed out the right explosives for the job. Set it to 25, Woods said. It'll go off about the same time. Tripp found a spot under a table near the center of the room and set the device. He changed the setting on the tricorder. If the communicator was in there, he'd find it, but the ping he got put it in another corridor altogether. I've got it, he said, and he led Woods out of the room. The guards were still down. That was promising. They ran quickly now. Woods checked each intersection and then they moved on again. They turned left at the next corridor and Trip caught a hint of an odor. As they moved farther, the odor became more noticeable and more horrendous. They turned right again and an outer wall of that building became visible on the tricorder. The stench was stronger, and it caused Tripp's eyes to water. Maybe that was why he hadn't seen the movement. Heroo! Woods pulled at Tripp's elbow, and they quickly backed into the closest of the room. Tripp looked around while Woods guarded the door. There were no animals in this room, but there was a large metal table and stands loaded with surgical equipment. Tripp really hoped this was a hospital, if this was where Malcolm had called from. He listened for the footfalls of what he assumed was another guard, but he couldn't hear anything. The tricorder, unfortunately, offered no help as the instruments in this room were giving off too much electromagnetic magnetic interference. Suddenly, Woods went flying backwards, right into Trip. To Woods' credit, he kept hold of his weapon. Trip couldn't say the same for the tricorder. Hiruna <inaudible> Osha. He looked up into the snarling, sharp-toothed face of another reptilian guard. Its own weapon pointed right at the two of them on the floor. Then something unexpected happened. The creature lowered its weapon slightly and held out one of its arms to them. Its three fingers spread out. Somewise it said. Huh? Trip replied as he and Woods slowly got to their feet. The guard holstered its weapon and ducked his head to look at them on the floor. Akia Samwise, it said, pointing to Trip and Woods. Somewise gumji. Tripp had no idea what Akia meant, but the rest of it sounded a lot like something he'd heard in a movie recently. Samwise Gamgee? Sir? Woods asked, not taking his hand off his rifle or his eye off the guard, who was now bobbing his head up and down. If it had been human, Tripp would have thought that a nod. The Lord of the Rings, Tripp replied. Equal Sam... The creature said, moving his, its hands in a manner that indicated it wanted them to follow. It backed out of the doorway. He might have used that as a code name, Trip guessed. I doubt these people have ever seen the movie. The guard looked down the corridor to the left and the right, then back again at them. Ka, it said, its voice softer but insistent. Tafa, do we trust him? Woods asked as he stood up. He's not shooting us, Trip replied. And if he knows where Mount Ma- Samwise is, I don't see as we have a choice. They stepped out into the corridor and the guard took off to the left, the same way they were heading before the guard had caught them. Tripp and Woods had to run to keep up. Tripp pocketed the tricorder so he could put his other hand over his nose. The stench was awful. It smells like something died, Woods whispered beside him, and Trip had to agree. He just wondered why whatever it was hadn't been cleaned up, this being a hospital and all. He holstered his phase pistol and took out the tricorder again he skidded to a stop at another branching corridor i really hope it's not lieutenant reed i didn't get human before on the tricorder not enough of it anyway Tripp told him though he was a bit worried himself if reed wasn't here was he already at yakina but the communicators there they kept going the smell was very intense here down the corridor was a row of narrow rooms with windowed doors on each side only one door was open. The guard was standing there, waiting for them. Beiju the guard said, and Tripp thought it sounded sad. It didn't follow them, but waited there as he and Woods moved toward the open door. The dead thing was most definitely there. Tripp felt the bile rise in his, up in his throat. The communicator was there, broken into several pieces on the floor, and one of the natives was similarly disemboweled at the far end of the room. Then he noticed what else was in the room, a bed, a small bed, small for one of the natives, but just about right for a human. The sheets were dirty and there were leather straps at the sides and top. Blood was smeared on the walls in places, even the far wall. Trip used the tricorder. Not all of the blood came from the dead native. Malcolm had been here, but blood was DNA. It had to go. Wood scooped up the communicator and dumped the pieces into one of his pockets. Tripp felt him tugging at his pack. He's not here, sir. Head out. Tripp stepped back out the door and let Wood set the charge. The guard was still waiting for them, nervously looking to either side as if it, he was afraid they all might get caught. Tripp wondered why this guard was trying to help them. As they caught up with it, it started off again, and Tripp realized they were heading toward the outer wall that he'd seen on the corridor on the tricorder. They reached an immense metal door, and the guard opened it to the cool night air beyond. He stepped partly out and pointed one of his long arms toward a hill on the horizon. Sam echo naira. Woods went out first, his rifle ready again. Clear, sir, he called, and Trip went out. Beju Hora Sam, the guard said. Tukala Beju. Arhora Aidu. There was a path, pavement covered in dry, sandy dirt, but still visible in the light of the doorway. It led away from the city and toward the hill. Tukala Sam, the guard went on. He stepped out of the way of the door and let it close behind him. Tafa, he pointed again to the hill. I don't know why you helped us, Tripp told the guard, but thank you. He turned to Woods. Shoot him. Sir? He's a traitor now. They'll kill him like they did the guy in the room. Shoot him so he won't have to answer so many questions later. Woods nodded. He made it quick, firing as soon as his weapon was raised. The guard went down. Then Woods and he were running again, and in 15 minutes they were at the top of the hill. Trip was breathing hard. At least the air is clean, he thought, thankful to be away from the stench of the dead native in the room where they had held Malcolm. He didn't want to think what they had done with him strapped to that bed. Woods pulled out his binoculars, and Trip used the tricorders for the same purpose. I see him, Woods said, adding, I think. He didn't sound too sure. Down by that ravine. Tripp expanded the range of his scan and verified it. Human, he said. That's him, all right. Something's with him, though. They ran again, slowing only as they neared the ravine. Tripp's legs felt like rubber by the time they'd dropped behind a ridge. Woods had the binoculars out as he peered over the ridge. What the? He said. A loud yelp sounded from Malcolm's direction, but it didn't sound human. He checked the tricorder and saw the thing that was with him was still there, though a bit farther away now. What? Tripp asked. Woods put the binoculars away and lifted his rifle. He changed the setting as he explained. Predator of some sort. Something hit it. it seemed to shock it. That explained the yelp. Tripp checked his face pistol, setting it to kill. Woods took aim with his rifle, popping up the sight so he could see. It's coming back for him, he said. I can get it from here. Do it, Tripp ordered. Woods pulled the trigger and the animal howled. Woods took another shot and it was quiet again. Damn, Woods exclaimed, letting the rifle fall back on its strap as he stood. The shock, he said. It also hit the lieutenant. Tripp paused only long enough to verify that there were no other creatures but the three of them for a mile in any direction. He snapped the tricorder shut. Let's go get him. As they ran closer, Trip began to make out Malcolm's form, lying on the side of a hill with his head on the low end. It was still too dark to tell what his condition was, but the closer they got, the clearer it got. Woods was faster and reached him first. By the point Trip could see clearly, he stopped running altogether, frozen to the spot by what he was seeing. Malcolm was lying on his back, wearing only an ill-fitted, blood-soaked gown. Stakes of some sort pinned his arms to the ground. This was Yakina they were too late sir woods called and trip swallowed the bile in his throat he's alive malcolm was alive trip could see it now his chest rose and fell in uneven jerks and his eyes were open trip forgot himself and woods and travis and everything else and ran to his friend malcolm didn't turn his head or move much at all trip put his face in front of malcolm's staring eyes and hoped his friend could see him malcolm he called can you hear me Tripp thought he saw Malcolm's mouth move. Trip, he breathed, looking up at him. I'm here, Malcolm, Tripp told him. You just hang on and we'll get you out of here. Malcolm said something Tripp could only make out long enough. And then it hit. It felt to Tripp like sparks running through his entire body. He nearly fell back into the ravine as his muscles contracted. The next thing he knew, someone was saying, Commander, It took a few seconds before he could see who was saying it. Woods, you all right? Tripp nodded, still trying to get a good breath. Sorry about that, the mako said. Pressure plate set it off, apparently to keep the predators away. Tripp stood and walked back toward Malcolm to see if he was still breathing. We need to stop that. He took out the tricorder and looked for the power source. It was near Malcolm's left leg, or rather, where the cable attached to his left leg was anchored. I'll get it. He moved over there, careful to stay on the far side of it. He brushed sand away and found a small box that contained a large battery and several leads. He took out the battery and tossed it down in the ravine. Good to go, he called. Woods nodded and opened his pack beside Malcolm. Woods checked the tricorder and set to work with pressure bandages and splints. Back's in decent shape. Won't have to worry about that, but he's got a collapsed lung. He used his knife to dig out a hole beside Malcolm and then poked a scalpel into Malcolm's side. He inserted a tube right behind it, and blood rushed out. Malcolm drew a deeper breath, but he was still breathing in small, uneven gasps. He opened his mouth in an attempt to talk, but only managed to croak out one word. Hoshi. We're going to get her too, Tripp said. Don't you worry about that, he addressed Woods. I can cut the cables, but I'm not sure yet how to get at the stakes. Wood held the tube so that the blood drained into the hole he'd made. Woods went back to the tricorder. They're deep, he said, indicating the stakes in Malcolm's arms. Maybe half a meter. We can't just pull them out without guaranteeing we infect the wounds and cause him more pain. Then we'll have to cut them, Tripp decided. He wasn't going to cause Malcolm any more pain than necessary. Use your plasma torch. We got anything to help the pain? Woods nodded as he activated his torch, but we can't give it to him. Why not? Tripp, using his own plasma torch, snapped the central cable first. Malcolm's legs dropped to the ground. With slack now in the outer two cables, Tripp was able to use the torch on them without Malcolm's legs moving again. Woods was on Malcolm's right, so Tripp went to the left. Tripp placed his flashlight so it faced Malcolm's elbow and then started to dig around the stake. But he didn't find much sand he found wood he thought for a minute 45 degree angle cutting deep will slice through that stake less than an inch down when he could see an inch of the stake he started cutting drugs could kill him woods finally answered i'm really surprised he's still here he's been here for hours commander he's sunburned badly probably nearing heat stroke by the time the sun went down now he's hypothermic trip moved the torch in a circle cutting at that 45-degree angle. The stake was cut, as was a wedge of the wood around it. Tripp's left arm was free. Tripp lifted it gently and spun the wood off the threads. Woods had the other cut loose, so Tripp took out his communicator and signaled for Travis. Then he just sat by Malcolm's head and brushed the rather long hair off his forehead while Woods continued working. Malcolm's lips were moving, but Tripp couldn't hear anything. Malcolm, he said, stay with me. Malcolm gasped and tried to move his legs as Mo- Woods moved him to get a blanket underneath him. His eyes scrunched closed in pain, but all Tripp could do was to, was tell him to keep breathing. You can do this, Malcolm. Woods very gently adjusted Malcolm's arms so that they were beside him on the blanket. Malcolm's eyes stayed closed, and his face contorted weakly into a silent grimace as his breath came and went in sobs. Tripp realized he didn't have the strength to even cry out. "'Just a little bit longer,' Tripp told him. Woods finished preparing Malcolm as a space opened in the night sky ten meters to their right. "'We're ready.' The space revealed the well-lit interior of the cell ship and Travis at the controls. Woods had spread another blanket over Malcolm's form. "'Get his head,' Woods said, "'and back into the ship. I'll get his legs.' Tripp nodded and helped to lift Malcolm with the blanket as they moved quickly toward the ship. Malcolm's face was red in the light of the ship.' Anyone coming our way? Tripp called to Travis when they had gotten close enough. Not yet, sir, Travis called out. All clear. How's Malcolm? From the look on your face, I'm guessing it's not good. Tripp didn't have time to give him a real answer. Just in case Malcolm was still conscious, he didn't want to mention just how bad it looked. It's not, he told him, and he sat back into the ship and started scooting back, pulling the blanket and Malcolm in with him. As soon as Malcolm's legs were in, the Mako ran back to the spot with the stakes. Tripp saw him place an explosive there. He ran back and jumped in, shutting the door. "'Take us home, Travis,' Tripp ordered. Malcolm was shivering under the blanket and still breathing in ragged gasps. His eyes were open, but he stared straight ahead as if he wasn't really seeing anything. "'We're going home, Malcolm,' Tripp told him, holding him to his chest in the cramped ship. "'You're going to be fine.' "'As fast as you can, Ensign,' Woods added. Travis had been watching Malcolm with wide-open eyes and concern written on his face. Tripp guessed his face could be red like that, too, but Travis snapped back to his controls. Aye, sir. I'm not a sir, Woods reminded him with a small smile. I don't care, Travis told him, and the ship began to lift. Try and keep it smooth, Travis, Tripp told him. I don't want to jar him. Travis nodded. How is he? He asked. Woods didn't spare him. He's dying. Thus the hurry. It will have been a long, torturous death, he added glumly, and wiped the back of one hand across his face. Then he pulled his pack off his back and fished for something. He came up with a pack of water and a clean cloth. He poured some of the water onto the cloth, then contorted as much as he could to reach Malcolm behind Travis's chair. He handed the cloth to Trip. Wipe his face, gently. Trip nodded and brushed the hair from Malcolm's forehead. His skin was splotchy and red. The skin on his arms and legs were worse beat red even in the dim light of the cell ship he'd been in the sun for hours You're going to be all right Malcolm he said trying not to choke on the words he brushed the wet cloth over Malcolm's forehead and cheeks Woods leaned over and put the pack to Malcolm's lips and let a little water trickle in Malcolm didn't swallow but he also didn't choke it was pro- it probably was just enough to moisten his parched mouth We broke orbit Travis reported three minutes to interference can you get a message through Woods asked Travis checked his sensors yeah they've got the tether out open a channel to sickbay Malcolm blinked and his gaze shifted just a bit when his eyes opened again you can do this Malcolm yep. you can do this Malcolm Trip whispered just keep breathing channel open Travis reported flocks said the doctor's voice We'll need you in the bay, Woods told him. Gurney, crash kit, blood, oxygen, he's critical. He finished by ticking off vitals. I'll be there. What's your ETA? 2.5 minutes if we don't have to wait for a chronoton pulse, Travis replied. Understood. I'll route you to the bridge. Bridge, Paul's voice came over the comm. We're just over a minute to the interference, subcommander, Travis told her. I need a window. Acknowledged, DePaul's calm tone annoyed trip. Malcolm was dying in his arms. He didn't want calm. Reduce speed by 0.17%, and you should come through just after a pulse. Reducing speed is not so great right now, Commander. Travis sounded panicked. That was better. You will arrive less than two seconds later than if you kept present speed and there was no pulse. There is, however, a pulse. Right, Travis sighed. Reducing speed. 0.19 now. Acknowledged. Two seconds. Trip thought. Malcolm can last two seconds more, I hope. Stay with us, Malcolm. We'll get you to Flocks. He's going to help you. He turned to Woods. Can he even hear me? Maybe, Woods replied. It can't hurt. Malcolm just kept gasping. Thirty seconds to interference, Travis reported. As smooth as you can, Ensign, Woods said. As I can, Travis replied. Smooth doesn't work there. Malcolm's gasp came slower now. Not now, Tripp thought. Hang on, Malcolm. That's an order. And Malcolm turned his eyes toward Tripp's voice. He gulped in another breath, then breathed out. Tripp. Tripp wouldn't have heard it if Malcolm's face hadn't been so close to his own. Malcolm, you've got to breathe, Tripp whispered back. Another gulp. Tell. Gasp. Hoshi. You're going to tell her yourself, Malcolm. Malcolm. We'll get her next, I promise. Here it comes, Travis warned, and then the ship began to shake. To Travis's credit, it wasn't as rocky as the trip down had been, but it didn't do Malcolm any favors. His gasps sounded more like chokes, and his eyes just got just a a tad wider. Trip couldn't imagine the kind of pain Malcolm was in when they found him, but clearly the jostling made it worse. And once the jostling stopped, so did Malcolm's gasps. Malcolm, Trip called out. He waited for a moment for another breath, but it didn't come. Instead, Malcolm just seemed to sink down into his chest. He stopped breathing. Floor it, Travis, Woods called out. He put a hand to Malcolm's throat. There's a pulse, weak, but it's still there. Breathe, damn it. Trip looked up and saw Enterprise looming closer and closing fast. The bay doors were opening. Just wide enough to get us in, Travis said. He may have called the ship. Then close them. We need flocks. Understood, Trip heard. It stopped. Tripp looked back down at Malcolm. No! His chest hurt. His throat hurt. So far. Malcolm had come so far. Tripp felt a thud and realized they had docked. Woods pulled back and edged closer to the door. Tripp counted the seconds until it opened. Woods was out before the door had fully opened. There was a flurry of movement behind him, and then Woods pulled at the blanket around Malcolm's legs and whisked him out of the ship. Trip had to react fast to slow the descent of Malcolm's head, and then he was gone. Travis didn't get up, but Tripp saw him lean over the flight co- console, and then he saw T'Pol through eyes growing cloudy with tears. She did something uncharacteristic. She held out her hands to both of them. Travis shook his head. We're going to get Hoshi, he said. We have to get her. T'Pol nodded and dropped that hand. You'll stay with Malcolm she said to Tripp. Stay. Would he need to stay if Malcolm was dead? Suddenly all the other sounds in the bay flooded his ears. Woods was talking in a rushed voice. Flux was calling out orders. He would have just pronounced him dead, Tripp realized. Malcolm's not lost yet. He took to Paul's hand and let her half pull him to the edge of the cell ship, just as they were carting Malcolm toward the door. I'm coming with him, he said, and he stood up. Dr. Bishte had volunteered to stay at the lab for the remainder of turn. He'd lost all desire to mate after Beiju's death and then the alien's execution. He'd tried sleeping, but that wasn't working either. He'd had nightmares that the alien was taking him to the ground. Instead, he'd gone to his office to draw up a death certificate. He'd sign it in the morning after he'd officially confirmed the death. Now all he had was everything they'd already learned. A year's worth of records detailing anatomical facts of the most amazing creature to ever set foot on Sharu a sentient primate who'd come from another world. He watched video taken through the months. He'd seen them all before, but perhaps he'd see something new in them. He pulled up the one from the time they'd drugged him to talk. It was the first time they'd heard more than one word from him. The alien rambled on and on, and Bishte found he could sense when the language changed. He kept playing it in the background and pulled up the records of the brain scan and vocal cords. Then the talking stopped and he heard static. He switched back to the video and stopped it. It was just static. The images were gone with the audio. He wondered what had gone wrong. He went back to the record of the examination of the brain. The images disappeared first, then the words began to dissolve. In a panic, bishtay turned off the computer. Then he remembered the files were on a server and backed up in the capital. He picked up the phone to call the network team there. A monitor answered the other end. Bishte tried to tell him that he needed the files restored from backup, But the monitor interrupted saying the servers were being attacked there and he didn't have time to talk. Bishte hung up the phone and ran down the corridor toward the server room. He turned a corner and nearly tripped on a guard lying prone on the floor. Another guard lay a few feet away. These were meant to guard Kaifa's laboratory, though that research was also hampered when Guy in a fit of rage had taken the device to the alien cell and crushed it under his powerful foot. The lab was dark. Vishtay tried nudging the guard at his feet, and the latter groaned. "'What happened here?' Vishtay demanded. "'Huh?' the guard asked. Vishtay changed direction and ran to the security room. No one was on duty there due to turn, but the cameras were active. He didn't see anyone suspicious, but he did see guards down at the main doors. One of them was Kare. Vishtay reversed that feed. His eyes grew wide. He saw Kare rise from the ground in reverse, and then two figures move backwards toward him. He backed into the main doors and they followed. Perhaps Kare had followed them and was shot. Viste looked for another feed. The figures were dressed like the aliens had been. One of them had worn the same uniform exactly. They were his people. He backed up to the feed on the cell where Beizhou's body was. He saw them enter in reverse. The one in the other uniform knelt, stood up, and then knelt again nearer to Beizhou's body. They left. Bishte ran it forward again. He could see their faces. They were the same species. They'd come for him. The kneeling one had picked up the pieces of the communications device and left something else. Bishte left the booth and ran there. He was breathless by the time he reached it. There was something there in the middle of the room. He could see it blinking through the window on the door, in the door. He ran again. He realized what it was. The computer files, all the research, all evidence... It was a bomb. They were destroying the evidence. Maybe the whole lab. It was too cold outside, but he had to leave. He wanted to see them. He ran toward the cold storage room. There were environmental suits there. He grabbed one and ran to the outer door where he'd seen Kare fall on the tape. Kare was just waking as Bishte ran out. Bishte grabbed his arm and half-dragged the groggy young raptor away from the door. Then he left him in the sand and hurriedly put on the suit. He could feel his limbs growing stiff. You saw them, he told Kare. They were like him. Did they go to him? Kare pointed a shaky arm in the direction of Yakina. It was awkward to run in the suit, but the adrenaline was flowing through Bishte. Maybe he could find them still there. He was losing everything else. He got a few dozen yards before he heard the blast behind him. He looked back to see that Kare was safe, then he then turned back again to Yakina. He ran on. He was panting hard when he crested the hill. His legs felt like rubber and spasmed. He started down anyway. As he got closer, he could see another blinking light in the area where the alien had been staked. Still, he had to know. He ran down the hill. He stopped when he was sure, when he could see clearly enough to know the alien was gone. He scanned the area for movement, anything. There was a hairy shape a little further away. Shara, most likely. He saw no other evidence. He backed away, then turned and ran to the top of the hill. He was knocked down by the blast. All the evidence, even his dying blood. Bishtey looked to the sky and the distant stars. There was a ship up there, Aldastufra. Another world out there somewhere, Aoste. Captain Archer had approved sending another probe, and T'Pol had launched it ten minutes later. It had a shorter flight plan and returned five minutes before the cell ship. Lieutenant Reed was being cared for in sickbay, so T'Pol went back to her lab in the hopes of finding Insensato. She hadn't expected it to be this easy. Once she downloaded the data, she pulled up the information on the biggest plantations in the eastern coast of the continent Poftanus was on. One stood out. It was drawing much more electricity than the others. A visual examination showed searchlights. What agricultural farm kept searchlights on hand? Carstairs entered the lab again. I was hoping to find the captain here. Reports from Bufthanas are finally coming through. We got in through the President's network. Well done, Tupal replied. Give me the data and I will upload the virus. What have you learned thus far? We started with the later reports after what we learned about Lieutenant Reed. Carstairs handed her a pad. Wherever she was, she's gone missing. Tupal studied the pad briefly. I see. Please find the captain and request he meet me in the launch bay. Jonathan Archer hadn't left the launch bay. He felt ill. He hadn't recognized the man Woods had dragged out of the cell ship, but he knew it was Malcolm, and he was sure by the limpness of his body and his blank staring eyes that Malcolm was dead. His stomach still recoiled. He had done this. Even after he knew Malcolm wasn't dead, it was still his fault. Phlox had pulled back the blanket and torn open the bloodstained cloth that covered Malcolm's chest. He cut away the sutures that were lined up vertically on his sternum and pushed his gloved fingers into the incision. Archer had had to turn away to keep from being sick. He only turned back when he heard the bag. One of Flax's assistants had the bag over Malcolm's nose and mouth and was forcing air into his lungs. They lifted the gurney and one of Malcolm's arms fell loose. The bile had risen in Archer's throat to see the piece of metal piercing Malcolm's forearm. They lifted his arm back onto the gurney and left the bay and Archer had stayed. He played it over and over in his head, Malcolm dead, the bag keeping him alive. What had he suffered, and why? If he'd waited, gotten more information before sending the shuttle pod. It's not your fault, sir, Travis said. Archer turned to look at him. He didn't get out of his seat or even straighten himself up, slumped as he was over the controls of the ship. We didn't know about the chroniton pulses or that it was Malcolm's voice on the transmission. Archer sighed. Until a few hours after they left, he reminded him. If I'd just waited for that information, then it wouldn't have been Malcolm's voice, Tripp argued. He called us, so he had to be down there. He said, save Hoshi, so she had to be down there too. If they weren't there, there wouldn't have been a transmission. But there was. Archer waved him off and... Turned back to the spot where Malcolm had lain. Starfleet's going to need a whole department to figure all that out. I can't understand enough of the temporal mechanics to take away my feelings of guilt. Dr. Flox may save him yet, Travis said. And we've got to find Hoshi. There won't be as much to feel guilty for. Besides, they probably think we all have enough guilt to go around for leaving them down there a whole- for a year. Archer thought about that and tried to push the guilt aside. Yeah that will be a fun conversation. T'Pol entered the bay. You're here, she said with subdued surprise. I've been here, Archer replied. I'm going to be here until we're ready to get Hoshi. We are ready, T'Pol stated. She handed him a pad. She's in a covert facility disguised as a working plantation midway up the eastern coast of the largest continent in the western hemisphere. Archer studied the coordinates and handed the pad to Travis. Tell Woods to get ready for another trip. Paul turned to make the call, and Archer sat down on the edge of the cell ship. Just tell me she hasn't been sentenced to death in the last twenty-four hours. In fact, Paul said as she ter- returned to him, she has gone missing. I believe they are looking for her. Missing? Travis asked, beating Archer to it. Archer wasn't sure what to make of that. How did they manage to lose the only human in the country? According to the guard making the feeding rounds, Tapal recited, she caused an altercation with her teammate and was injured. The raptor female became aggressive and had to be removed. He left with two raptor females and left her locked in a coop. When he returned for her, he only found her coat and footwear. There is a blizzard hitting that region, ten centimeters of, of snow per hour. It covered her tracks. She made a run for it, Travis summarized, shock and perhaps a bit of pride in his voice. A run for what? Woods asked. He had returned, cleaned up, and with a restocked kit bag. "'She's injured and cold on a planet full of dinosaur people. Where's she going to run?' Archer knew he was right. It was an act of desperation. But why now? Why tonight? "'Our sensors can find her?' "'Easily,' T'Pol answered. He had one more question. How long has she been missing? "'It's not exact, but I estimate one or two hours.' "'Let's go find her before they do.' Archer activated the door and slipped back into the ship. Woods tossed his bag in and ducked under the closing door. T'Pol nodded and headed out of the bay. Travis guided the cell ship out of the launch bay as soon as the doors had opened wide enough for the ship to get out. The cell ship turned away from Enterprise and headed for the interference layer and the planet beyond. The comm chirped. T'Pol's voice reported, Chroniton pulse in three, two, one. You have a forty-second window, Ensign. Aye, sir, Travis replied. I'm on it. The ship bumped and rocked violently for four seconds, and they were through and streaking toward the planet. Travis activated the cloak and steered them to the large northern continent in the western hemisphere. They stayed at high altitude until they'd reached the eastern coast in the vicinity of the coordinates Paul had given. They couldn't see land. There was an endless floor of white clouds. The blizzard. Winds are strong, Travis said. It's going to push us, but I figured that in. He began to lower the cell ship straight down into the cloud. The winds began to buffet the ship even before they'd exited the cloud. The ship moved laterally, but Travis turned it against the wind, so they were watching the ground come closer. Then Archer thought he saw it. Long streams of light were hitting the clouds above and the ground below. Searchlights. They're either looking for her or heard about Jiren, Woods commented. That's the place, all right, Travis stated. We'll be there in 25 seconds. Time to start looking for a human. Archer turned to the sensor controls and set them to search for human biosigns. He prayed Hoshi still had one of them to detect. Ten seconds, Travis called out. There was nothing on the sensors. Archer boosted their power, drawing from weapons and warp, two systems they wouldn't need right now. We're here, Travis said. This is the outer edge of the compound where she was working. Fields are on the other side of the building. Coop's here for small animals, probably a food source. Travis pointed at the viewscreen. Beyond his finger was a swarm of movement. At least twenty very large, very menacing velociraptors in uniform were searching the cages, a pond, the open ground, and the trees right up to the wall the cell ship hovered over. Anything on sensor, sir? Archer looked back at his display, still showing a distinct lack of results. He heard Wood sigh behind him. Blood, sir. Look for her blood. Archer took a breath and nodded. He adjusted the sensors as guilt crashed in on him again. She was dead, too. The sensors beeped. Pinpoints of blood showed up and Archer compared them to the scene out front. At the far cage on the left, there are minute traces leading up to and beyond the pond. There's some on a tree to our right. Turn us around, Travis. Ninety degrees. The ship turned. She climbed the tree. There were larger concentrations on the rocks below the broken branch on the other side of the wall. She's on the other side. Woods was straining to look over his shoulder. She can't have gotten far. Not after that fall in the cold. Set us down, Travis, Archer ordered. Yes, sir. The ship moved to the side until it was clear of the high wall that marked the edge of the compound. Then it dropped slowly to a gentle landing on deep snow. Steam rose up in front of the ship. Let's hope nobody saw that, Travis said. Get the weapons back online, just in case, Archer told him. Woods, you're with me. Archer activated the door panel, and one side of the ship lifted skyward, exposing them to a blast of cold air and snow. "'Let's hope no one looks over that wall,' Woods remarked as he slid out from Travis's left. Archer stepped out and began to shiver. Maybe they should have taken the time to dress appropriately. He pulled out his scanner and adjusted it while he could still work his fingers. "'She headed for those trees,' he told Woods, and pointed to a clump of thick-trunked trees in front of them and to their right. "'The trail stops there.' Every step they took dropped their feet at least six inches into the snow, so they couldn't move very fast. Archer's nose and ears were going numb as they reached the edge of the trees. Woods had his own scanner out. Some of them are hollow, he said. Archer wasn't sure he heard right. Hollow? The trees. Some of them are hollow. Maybe she took shelter in one. Archer readjusted his scanner. I'll take right, you take left. He headed for the first hollow tree on his right, but heard a distinct oomph behind him. Woods had fallen right into a snowdrift on the windward side of an old tree. Sir! Not him too, Archer thought. This planet was going to eat his soul for all his guilt of injuries or deaths of those of his crew who were hurt or killed here. But as he neared Woods, he didn't seem injured. He was pulling snow away from the tree with his hands. It's her, he said. And Archer could see the bluish-white leg Woods had must have tripped on. Archer pocketed his scanner and dropped to help pull the snow away. Then he could see her. Her eyes were closed and she wasn't moving. Her left arm lay at an an odd angle on her thighs and one leg was tucked up to her chest. She wore a thin gown of plain fabric. Hoshi, he tried. Woods put his hand to her neck. No good, my hands are numb. She's out of the wind in there. She might be alive. He pulled the scanner back out. And I don't think we're getting her out of there easy. He pointed to the top of the extended leg. This hip is dislocated, several ribs broken, the arm of course. We have to move her, but medically we shouldn't. We can't leave her here, Archer told him. You're the medic. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Woods nodded and then had Archer maneuver Hoshi's leg while he tried to turn her torso in the hollow of the tree. Then together they slid her out. Woods got an arm under her legs and another under her back. Help me up. Archer helped him to stand with her, and then they raced back to the ship as quickly as they could. The door lifted as they approached, which was good because they couldn't see the ship and might have run right into it. Woods went in first and laid Hoshi in the back. Archer got in and closed the door. Woods pulled a thermal blanket from his pack and started wrapping her up. He pulled his scanner. "'Just barely there,' he said. "'Make it it quick, Mr. Travis.' "'Yes, sir,' Travis said. The ship rose fast but smooth. It went with the wind and shot upwards toward and through the the clouds. Archer vaguely registered the sight of the atmosphere as they broke through into space. Sell ship to Enterprise, Travis called on the con. We need a window. Mm -hmm. Increase speed by .26, Ensign, Paul responded. You'll see the pulse. Let it pass. Archer couldn't help but turn to look out the view screen. A wide, bright flash winked in front of them, blinding them for a minute. The ship didn't stray from its course, and soon they were buffeted by the interference. Archer looked back to Hoshi, but she hadn't moved. Phlox is in surgery, Travis reported after he closed the comm. The cold's what'll kill her, Wood said. I can help with that. We make it to sickbay, and I'll keep her stable until Phlox can take over. A gurney was waiting when the door rose. T'Pol was there. Mr. Travis, if you're up for another flight, there is still physical evidence in Pftanis that needs addressing. Archer left her to manage that and passed four makos as they came into the bay armed to the teeth. He followed Woods and Hoshi and the medtechs around her. When they entered sick bay, he found it subdued. Phlox was in the back area with Reed. Woods and the, med- the medtechs put Hoshi on a bed and wrapped her in more blankets. You got her. Archer turned to find Tripp sitting legs out on the floor, leaning on one of Phlox's cabinets. He had a hollowed out look. There are chairs. Archer suggested gently. Tripp didn't seem to hear him. I don't know how he's going to live through that. Archer remembered the sight of Reed in the launch bay. He didn't know either. He didn't say anything. He just sat down beside him and waited for woods or flocks to tell him that one or the other, or both, had died. Okay, with that somber thought, chapter twenty-seven has ended. All right, let's go with through the summary pretty quick. Okay, the first uh, scene has Hoshi putting into practice her plan, and she instigates. They're they're feeding the animals. They get to the last coop, and she instigates one. Well, she and. En- antagonizes one of the other raptors and that causes the guard to take both both of the cold raptor females out. He locks her in the coop thinking she'll be there when he comes back and he zaps her so she's down for 10 minutes. Now after 10 minutes she's able to move. She gets up and she unlatches the gate that the guy probably didn't think she could do and then she makes her run. She's got a little blood on her leg from the altercation with the female and she gets into the pond, she gets soaked and wet, she's freezing, but she manages to climb the tree, climb the tree, climb the tree, get out on that limb, get over, and it breaks on, and she falls as she kind of jumps over to the other side, and she falls down on some rocks. and her body explodes into pain, and she lost, loses consciousness. And then there is a, an extremely long scene <laughs> i usually do two scenes at a time at a you know time but i went over like 20 minutes and then i was still not done with the second scene this scene is incredibly long and it's trip and woods and they're looking through binoculars looking at the the facility they drop one guard stun him and they go in they find the room with the specimens all refrigerated they take out some blood and the bone chip and then they blow you know set the bomb to blow in 30 minutes they go to where the compu- com- communicator would have been. They stun the two guards there. They go in. They see the lab. They don't find the communicator, but they do set a bomb to blow up the rest of the la- that particular lab. And then they keep going. Now they're looking for the um, communicator on the tricorder. And they're heading toward this one area, and it's starting to stink. And they don't see... Uh, it's actually Kare, if you don't catch that. They don't see Kare. Kare tells them, Heru, which we can imagine is stop there, <laughs> or stop. And he then realizes that they're like Samwise. So he says, Samwise, and Trip is like, huh? And he says, Akiya Samwise, Samwise Gamgee. So Akiya like Samwise, Samwise Gamgee. I'm telling you the translations now. <laughs> it's not in the text, but in the summary here. And Trip doesn't know what Akia means, but he gets Samwise Gamgee. It's from The Lord of the Rings. And then he says, "Eko Sam," that means, "Are you looking for Sam?" And he moves his hands in a manner to indicate he wanted them to follow. So he actually takes them to the room where Beju's body is, and. He basically tells him, follow, be quiet, ka, tafa. And they're like, do we trust him? And he's like, he's not shooting us. Mm-hmm. And if he knows where Samwise is, we have don't have no choice. So they find Beiju, the dead body. And um, the guard sounds kind of sad as he says, Beiju. Um, so obviously we know that means it's the name of his friend. And... They find the broken communicator there. Woods picks up the pieces, sticks them in a pocket, and sets a bomb. Now they go out, and Kare shows them out to the door, and he says, Beju Hora Sam. Beju helped Sam. And Tu Kala Beju. Um, I don't remember what Tu Kala Beju means. Ar Hora do. I don't remember what that's supposed to mean exactly. He says, Tu Kala Sam. And I don't know what that means exactly, but something like, you know, Be- Beju helped him, oh, You now you help him. Or Beju was dead and Beju was killed. They killed Sam there. Something like that. I mean, I, I wrote this and would have written this somewhere around 2013, 2014, so <laughs> trying to remember exactly what was said. is a little difficult. Okay, and, um, Tripp is like, I don't know why you helped us, but thank you. And then tells Woods to shoot him. Why shoot him? So he won't look like a traitor. Uh, he'll look like he was shot. Okay. And they go over that way and they see that there's something with Malcolm. And there's a shock that goes off. The the thing yelps and goes away. Woods kills it. It's a shara. Don't, they don't know that, but it's a predator. It's a shara. He stopped moving, so the Shara comes at night and goes after things that don't move, right? Um, way back in the beginning when they were in the desert, we learned that. Okay, and they go up there, and Malcolm is just, I mean, Trip is just kind of f- frozen. He just stops running when he sees Malcolm, and he's just sure he's dead, looking at him. But Wood says he isn't dead, and they... um Malcolm goes our trip goes right to him, but gets shocked because he hit the the pressure plate that sets off the defibrillator, and so he goes down. And after he wakes up, they de- deactivate that by taking the battery away and throwing it off. But then they were able to cut through the cables when his ankles, and they decide to cut through the wooden p- pilings, a uh, p- pylons to m- remove the stakes. They can't pull the stakes out that would just pull wood fragments and whatever up through his arm making more more of a problem and hurting him more so they have to keep the stakes but cut them so they're not as long and they do that and they kind of get Malcolm prepared Malcolm does choke out a few things very little um, like trip he noted he recognizes his nice's trip he says is uh, based long enough so he's probably saying something like you took you long enough um, but, and then he tries to get out Hoshi. He, he's really close to death at this point. He's not getting a lot out. Um, they can't give him medicine because he's just too far gone. It could just kill him. So, um, they wrap him up, get him ready to go in the ship, and Trip backs into the, sh- the ship, taking Malcolm up toward his chest. It The cell ship is not a very big ship, so it's going to be cramped. So he basically... Brings Malcolm up to his chest, and they bend his legs to get him in, and he holds Malcolm so he said, Malcolm's face is right up near his face, and so that's how he hears him say something like "Tell Hoshi," but he just can barely breathe it out, and Trip can hear him gasping for breath, and when they go through the when they go through the interference layer, Malcolm stops breathing. He doesn't take another gasp, but, um, uh, uh, Woods, (laughs) Woods can see that he has a pulse on the tricorder, but that stops just before they dock, and when they dock, the door comes open. Before it's all the way open, Woods gets out and just drags, just swooshes Malcolm out where the doctor is waiting, and... Trip is sure he's dead. Trip is sure he's dead and then it all comes the sounds come back to him and he realizes that they're they're bagging um Malcolm like giving him breath. And that means he's not dead and then the and the doctor's there with him. So Trip is kind of in shock there but um Paul, offers hands to both um Travis and Trip to get them out of the ship, but Ma- uh, Travis says he's going to stay, because they're going to go get Hoshi, and Trip is going to go with Malcolm to sickbay. Alright, the next scene, then, when we finally get to another scene, is Dr. Bishte, and he's volunteered, he's given up on turn, because Beju's death, and then that what he had to do out at Yekina. That eh, all desire to mate is gone, and um, he decides to go over some video and audio. Um, he goes over the three hours where Malcolm spoke 12 languages. He's got that playing and he goes to look at the pictures and notes from the brain scan and um, it start, the, the noise stops and then the, the brain scan images start going away. Then the text does, that's the virus at work. And he realizes that he calls Gelm, um, the capital because they have backups there but the guy in charge of that is saying, somebody's attacking our computers. I cannot have time to talk to you. The virus at work. And so he goes through the cameras of, he goes to the security office and the cameras that are active now at Kinesitai because of the, of the things that happened. And he's able to see these things with Kare and realizes they're like Samwise. They are his people. And they go to the room where Beiju is. They pick up something, leave something. He realizes they've set bombs by the time he... Ra- oh, he races to the room and he sees the blinking light and he realizes that's a bomb. So he goes outside. He puts on a co- uh, an environmental suit so he can survive out there. Kare is just waking up and he's like, you saw them. What you know?" But he wants to see them. He really wants to see them. And so he runs out to Yakina, And he sees that there's another blinking light there. There's no body. And he realizes they have gone. And he gets back up the hill before it blows. I really wanted to make this part kind of sympathetic for Bishte. Bishte was not an evil guy. He wasn't. The scientists weren't. They didn't know they didn't have the anesthesia right. So they didn't know they were hurting him that way. The other things they did, some of it wasn't nice, but, you know, collecting the semen without his consent, but it wasn't evil. It was only when Jenna was pushing them toward the end that they kind of compromised that, and it did not sit right with him. And the worst thing was what he had to do to Malcolm at Yakina. It really made him sick, and he would have acted like Beiju to help him if there was any possibility that he could have gotten Malcolm out of there, but he couldn't then with geyser and jenna right there he'd have been staked right beside him because he would have been found you know he'd be guilty of treason so he didn't except in small ways he hoped to cause malcolm the most pain so that the shock would kill him but then they put on the defibrillator and there goes that plan so yay he's not He's not a bad guy, and he is a guy who believed that there were aliens out there, and he really just wanted to see their ship, where they came for him. He wanted to see them come for him, even if it meant they got away. I could see Bishte if they ever had a way that they could just get off the planet, him and, uh, and, and he would just be curious to see. He wouldn't be to get Malcolm back to study more. It would just be curiosity to see space and and out there if he was the lone um sharu character character out in the universe with you know mixing with starfleet and uh, the, the ambulance and everybody else he would be he would just enjoy it he he would be he would be humble and he would be curious about all of it and he would just be amazed but he doesn't get to see them they were in an invisible ship and they were probably all the way you know all the way up to the the uh, space by then but he tried so then we go back and now we are at Archer in the launch bay and he is feeling guilty oh no no sorry it's to Paul and she sent a probe and it came back and she's kinda of narrowed it down. She thinks she knows where it where he will be. And Carstairs come, or where Hoshi will be. She Carstairs comes in and tells him that she's gone missing. And she goes to the launch bay and he lets them know. Um so Archer is there with Travis. Travis well, Archer is feeling guilty. If they just waited a few hours, they would have known about the Chronoton waves. They would have known something, you know, they could have avoided the shuttle disappearing altogether. But Travis points out, but there was the message. It came. Therefore, Malcolm was down there. And he says, save Hoshi. So Hoshi was down there. If they stayed on the ship, I mean, it, it's a loop. <laughs> and uh, Archer point, says Starfleet's going to need a whole department to figure all that out. And we know from DS9, there is a Temporal, temporal Affairs Department at Starfleet later on. Um, but, uh, you know, he's pretty sure Malcolm's going to die, and he feels guilty still. And uh, Travis points out that Dr. Flux may save him, and we've got to go find Hoshi, and so maybe there won't be as much to feel guilty for. Um, and besides, there'll probably be enough guilt to go, to go around as far as they're concerned because they left them there for a year. And Archer points out that that will not be a fun conversation. He uses some sarcasm there. And uh, T'Pol enters and gives them the data on Hoshi. He calls Woods down so Woods can come with them. And he and Woods go down with Travis to go down to get Hoshi. They go all the way down and they go just outside that wall. So the, the other guys, even if the ship was visible, they wouldn't see them because they're searching inside the wall and they're outside the wall. Only when they sat down in the snow and there's some steam, if somebody had been looking that way, they might have seen the steam because the ship could, would be hot, but the, the snow would be cold and they turn the the ship and they open it up and Archer and Reed uh, Woods get out in the deep snow and they aren't wearing snowshoes and or coats so it's very cold but fortunately they very quickly stumble upon Hoshi in the hollow of a tree and they get her out and bring her into the cell ship and up to Enterprise and when they bring her in Woods takes care of her to keep her stable because Phlox is busy with Reed. And Archer hears Tripp is there. You have got her? And so he turns to see Tripp and he's sitting on the floor. Just his legs out and he's leaning back on one of the cabinets. And, you know, Archer points out there are chairs, but Tripp is still just kind of in shock. And he says, I don't know how he's going to live through that. And that brings Archer back to the site of Reed in the launch bay, and he doesn't know either. And the last sentence, he just sat down beside him and waited for woods or flocks to tell him that one or the other or both had died. I noticed that each of these last three chapters all end up with like died dead (laughs) something there at the end, Um, which is a nice, cruel way to end it (laughs) uh, for readers. Um... Cruelty is a form of evil, and I do think that us fanfic writers should be evil. <laughs> should not be afraid to be evil to our readers. It's um it's very poignant, and it's a great place to leave the end of the chapter because it's kind of a mini cliffhanger. Each one of these three chapters ended on a mini cliffhanger. So You know, at least you're getting these chapters pretty quick, either two per night, you know, you have to wait just a little bit or you have to wait one more night for the next chapter. But, you know, back in, you know, the day when I was reading it, they had to wait a long time. The readers had to wait a long time between chapters. And so I'd leave them with this mini cliffhanger and they would it would be like a giant cliffhanger to them because it might be six months before they get the next episode. I would love to read 28, 29 and 30 right here tonight. I may finish them all tomorrow. <laughs> it's you know I could stay up late tomorrow it's, it'll be Friday um, so I just may do it and get this get this story done tomorrow. Um, it's, whew, it's, it's a it's you know the the action may be ended at this point, but there's still the point of will they survive? So, you know, they've done the thing where they've attacked the lab, blown up the samples, blown up the research with the the, um, computer virus, and they've blown up every evidence of human, and they got Malcolm. And we've done the scene where they go down and they get Hoshi, and we've set them on the way. Travis is going to go down with four Makos, drop them off. They are going to take care of all the evidence in the lab. I don't specifically write that scene. So you can just imagine it. Maybe they go to the roof and they work their way down the lab because they've got all those people on the ground looking for Hoshi. But they can sneak in, go in the roof, get down there, blow up everything in the lab and get back up and go. (laughs) Maybe Enish or um, Besta catch a sight of them. But um, they'll probably be stunned. (laughs) And then maybe dragged out so they don't get blown up. Um, Or maybe these Himekos aren't going to care if... Collateral damage happens. <laughs> Will Enish and Besta survive? We don't know. Um, this is the last of Sharu. That scene where Bishte was running out to try and see them—that was the last scene on Sharu. I. That's kind of a spoiler, but it's kind of not. We just—you just wouldn't hear from them again. And why? Because our two main characters are now on Enterprise. And just as Enterprise disappeared when they weren't around, and the the action moved to where Hoshi and Malcolm were on the planet, now that they're on the ship, we leave the planet behind. And it's kind of interesting because I know... <laughs> I've left implications down there on that planet. Bishte still remembers, Gibon remembers, Burha remembers, Henath remembers, Kare remembers. Besta and Enesh remember. The council remembers, Gudai remembers, Goti remembers. They remember, so they know there are they are aliens out there. And there was an interesting thing, too. I played a couple of chapters to my husband. He's heard four chapters now. And when I was listening to it with him, I realized, okay, they buried the communicator. What did they do with the med kit? When we find out all the words that they have and the things they have of Malcolm and Hoshi, no mention is made of the med kit. So I made a mistake and left the med kit out. So I imagine it's buried out there, too. But they didn't find it. Maybe they find it later. <laughs> it's just like some story ideas that I never wrote. Um, I'm not going to write probably. Maybe they find that med kit later, and they make start some new research based on that med kit, and they realize that that tricorder isn't a weapon; it isn't a communications device. It's a it's a device for health. And maybe this community, this tricorder, revolutionizes the world when suddenly they have a device that can look inside a person without having to cut them open. That uh, knowledge, there are both Tunisian spies, and Jiren, somebody called Enish, and there was the, the, the monitor that gave the pill to Nishet. So they're going to get that information and that technology back to Bufthanas. Now everybody can do this with healing everybody. Maybe this just kind of changes the world. And begins to bring them together. Who knows? Maybe they realize now after turn that it was a targeted strike. It was not an attack on the country. It was a targeted strike on the evidence of the humans. And they didn't kill anyone. They could have but they didn't kill anyone. And maybe that changes even the raptors' minds about whether or not these aliens would have invaded. And they made a mistake staking the mail at Yakina. The raptors were all, you know, kind of uh, warheads, (laughs) Uh, warmongers, and the, the scientists were on a better tack. But they still didn't do a very good first contact and obviously they haven't even got more than a satellite up in the air they can't get cell ship or you know they can't get ships up till they can make them smaller lighter and they're big people so they have big hands and it's it's tough but imagine they make it someday how many centuries does it take before Sharu is able to have warp power, to able to have that first contact, it's actually going to be a second contact with someone out there, some race out there. Maybe by then it's,
1: <laughs> maybe it's Lower
0: Decks. They do second contacts. <laughs> uh, um but uh maybe it's the the this uh, the, the Cerritos. <laughs> um maybe it's enterprise uh under under um captain picard maybe it's titan under captain riker um but I- imagine that day when they can put a different foot forward to the universe and find out that some places, women are very much equal to men, <laughs> um, but realize that, you know, now they kind of hold Malcolm and Hoshi, Samwise, Gamgee, and Frodo in kind of legendary status, and they, you know, eventually find humans like them, and they apologize for the treatment of those two, and they're told that they survived or didn't as we'll find out in the next three chapters. Um, Still, it won't be Bishte. He will not be around for that. And, you know, obviously, we don't know it, but they probably don't live hundreds of years. So Bishte himself would be gone. But, you know, he got to mate before all this happened. Maybe he has a son. And maybe he teaches his son. Maybe he regales his son with those stories. And maybe his son grows up to believe in his son and his son and his son. And maybe they find out, you know, you know maybe there's a descendant of Bishte who gets to, to do what, Beju, what Bishte would have loved to do. To go out and find out there is a universe out there of many different people. I think that would be kind of cool. But our two people are on Enterprise, for better or for worse, and we now leave Sharu behind. Um, While you wait until tomorrow, and it's the new episode of Chapter 28, maybe you can imagine that. What will go on in the future for Sharu? We just walked away from it. They'll pick up the pieces from the broken labs. They'll do whatever. Maybe they know because they know people are out there and they didn't try to kill them. Maybe they'll start working to try to send signals out there to, like, you know, the SETI project. You know, just try to get communication with those outside. But they got that interference layer that's going to make that difficult. So, yeah. There's things that could happen on Sharu, but we aren't going to see them done by me. (laughs) If you feel led to write a story about Sharu inspired by alien us, about what happens afterwards, whether it's right after or hundreds of years after, and you want to write that, just put in, you know, that you, this story inspired you. I would love to read it. I would love to see what you create from that. I think there's, there's room there if it should inspire you. Um, just link back to Alien Us and say it's inspired by. That's all I'd ask. And, uh, you know, credit me with Alien Us for, to Philippe de Troc. I have been thinking more about Shahruh since I was, have been reading this in my podcast than I did in 2014 when I left them behind. So, or 2013, I'm not sure exactly when I did chapter 27, um, I know I finished chapter 30 in, in 2014. So, yeah, it's kind of bittersweet. Um, I think if Bishte ever got to see, let's say, Malcolm and Hoshi do survive. I'm not sure they do. Do they stay on the ship? Do they stay on Earth? Do they retire? Do they? I, I don't know. And if uh, they die, who replaces them? Who takes their spot? But let's imagine they do survive, and somewhere down the line, they were able to meet up with Bishte. And maybe Kenu comes along for the ride because he feels a lot of regret now, remorse. But he is ready to learn languages out there. And and Bishte gets a chance to apologize. And to become a member of the universe (laughs) out there. I think he would, if given the opportunity. I think he would. And I think Kenu would apologize, too. I think that's in them. Kenu went too far. And he colluded kind of with the raptors. The raptors absolutely went too far. Um, But Berha and Bishtey did not, but Verha wasn't that believer that um Bishte was before the aliens came down. So he maybe doesn't have the same level of curiosity about them that Bishte does. So I liked that last scene with Bishte just running out there to try and see them. That's really all he wanted right then was to see them. He's a little um Jealous of Kare because he did get to see them. And I like to think that either the virus zapped those, um, somehow zapped those security videos that showed uh, trip and, and Woods to or he erases them to save Kare. Because it's evident in those videos that Kare was showing them. That he didn't, you know, stop them. He, he took them. Without the cameras, he gets shot at the door, he'd be fine. But with the cameras, he's in trouble. So I like to think that once be- Bishtay realized that the lab is still standing, he goes into the security office and he deletes those. I I think that would be nice. Um, he'd have to cover his tracks well, because, well, but he's a doctor. Maybe he's smart enough to do it. <laughs> but I think that... He would try to save Kari. All right. Well, that's enough commentary. At this point, I think. I so look forward to reading the next three chapters. I hope you look forward to hearing them. And uh, I would love to hear what you think. Of course, I say that every time, but I mean it every time. Please. Email me at inhildi at gmail.com or tweet me at inhildi. Inhildi is spelled I N H E I L D I. If you want to go on AO3 or fanfiction.net and do reviews or comments there, that's, that's fine. Um, I reply to every single one. I do. I don't reply to kudos and favorites because there's nothing to reply to. I get notified. I capture every bit of feedback in a database. I save the files, save the emails. I, um, get, keep the, you know, calculate everything in a spreadsheet. <laughs> I value my feedback in all its forms, bookmarks, C2s, faves, kudos, subs alerts, reviews, comments, all of them. Tweets. I save every single one because they matter to me. Fanfic writers don't get money. We get feedback. That is our pay for entertaining you. And we should value it not the abusive ones obviously i don't i've never received an abusive comment i know some people have though and there's no excuse for that but constructive criticism finding my typos (laughs) pointing out that i missed that med kit (laughs) before i noticed it and i only noticed it this year (laughs) like last week (laughs) oh well Not going to go back and change that much of the story. I didn't notice it for quite some time, and nobody else had noticed it. I'm telling you about it now, but, um, yeah, maybe that's a revolutionary thing for Sharu in the future. But um, I value feedback, and I really, really would like to hear from you in one way or another. All right, I'm signing off for the night. Have a good one. And I'll be back tomorrow.